Hello and welcome to Galactica Actually. I am Jamie Smith and I've never been awake for five days straight. <laughs> Joining me is my co-host Diallo Jackson. Have you ever been awake five days straight? Never have I ever. Um, What's I, the longest time, length of time you've been awake? Um, maybe a couple days, maybe three. I'm not sure. Wow. Yeah. I honestly don't think I've ever been awake for 24 hours. No? Not really. Not not completely awake. Like, maybe I dozed, but no. Although, that's not entirely true. I guess this trip I just recently took to England, uh -huh. I barely slept on the plane and then stayed awake the whole day and went to bed at like whatever time we went to bed, 10, 30, 11 o'clock because we were tired. And that might have ended up being about 24 hours with the time difference. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I can barely handle uh, like, you know, staying up past a certain time. So uh, these guys had it rough in this episode for sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> first of all, I just want to go over a little bit of show business. Um, our first episode is posted on the interwebs, so you should be able to find it on Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, um, wherever you get your podcasts from, your, whatever podcatcher you use. Um, I also started a Twitter account, which is at GalactActPod, which I know is clunky, but you only get a certain number of letters <laughs> to use for those handles um i will at the very least tweet when a new episode goes up but i'm not very good at twitter i guess that doesn't mean i can't get better but i'm human i'm not a cylon if i were a cylon i'd probably do better at twitter it definitely takes bots to get those things going sometimes so <laughs> yeah um i was thinking about doing an instagram because everybody uses instagram so much but i just don't really know what i would post so we'll think about it. Um, I love feedback and, you know, your feedback, especially because you're the co-host. I could work something up. Um, <laughs> we could do like an image a week uh, from the episode and um, uh, maybe the title and that kind of stuff. So, you know, people know what to expect when they jump onto the podcast. Okay. We'll talk mm -hmm. about it. Sure. Um, so... Let's get into this week's episode. I thought about being like, okay, we've got 33 minutes, but <laughs> I, I feel like that would be a disservice. Yeah. I mean, this episode was, uh, you know, longer than 33 minutes, so. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So this was the first episode of the actual season. Did you want to say who wrote and directed and all of that? Yeah. That, uh, it kicked off the series um the regular series uh, is written by ronald d moore um the showrunner and uh you know of um again my favorite star trek show um deep space nine and the director uh michael reimer who was responsible for the look and feel of the miniseries that carried over into 
the um, into the regular show, and he's probably get... the uh, one of the uh, principal, you know, landmark directors of the show um, over the course of the series. Yeah. We also get Bear McCreary, finally. Yes, Bear McCreary doing his thing. Um, Some poundy, poundy drums. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, it's interesting because like, he, he took what was done by Richard Gibbs and just kind of like turned it to 11, it sounded like. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So we start out with um, the crew on the Galactica, and it seems... Everyone on Colonial One, we could probably guess that the crews on the fleet ships as well have been up for five days straight because every 33 minutes exactly the Cylons show up and try to kill them. Mm-hmm. We are dropping in on them just before their 237th jump. If this just all just feels really exhausting. I have to commend them for making the decision to start the series out this way. Yeah. I think Ron Moore said like he, you know, he batted around a couple of ideas, but he pretty soon knew he was going to do 33 uh, and then just like kind of jumped in and did it. Um, I think he did it without really an outline or anything, which you can kind of feel the organicness of this episode um, from that. Uh, it's mm-hmm. very experiential. Like, and you, you get the, you get what they feel um, as they go through this exhausting uh, experience. Yeah. I read that um, he, or maybe Michael Reimer, they gave each main character a different sort of, like tick or thing that was affecting them the most in their exhaustion so that everybody had a a sort of different flavor to portray instead of everybody just sort of being the same, Yeah, which is interesting. I'd like to go back and rewatch and just sort of pick out like, what was that thing for these, for each character? Cause it's interesting. It just felt really real because everybody is going to deal with exhaustion in different ways. Yeah, I mean, the first time, <laughs> the first, I remember the f- first viewing or the second one, it's just, you know, the obvious one is the, uh, you know, the tired makeup. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and that everyone's got beards and, you know, um, saggy eyes and that kind of stuff. Their hair is out of place and unkempt. Um not Rosalind though. She's uh she's still all put together, but everybody else uh definitely looks worse for wear. Her thing I think maybe was how she was speaking. Mm. Her voice was very soft and scratchy mm-hmm. through the entire episode and I noticed it, but I read this thing from from Rod Moore or whoever afterwards, but hers i think that might have been hers um i noticed like um adama had red eyes like bloodshot eyes Mm -hmm. which i it almost looked watery which i thought was a good effect and that might have just been the makeup choice and not like a sort of acting choice you know yeah yeah i just noticed with him it was very noticeable might have been those contacts i don't even know how like 
especially this, you know, I've always I've watched this episode a billion times by now, but I don't know, I was really kind of contemplating <laughs> the situation here. I like I don't literally don't know how they would have functioned. Like there was never enough time to go to sleep. 130 hours of yeah. doing that. I just I I don't like, you know, it's it's amazing that they made it 237 times. Um it's amazing that apparently only 61 people had sort of broken down from exhaustion on the Galactica. I don't know how many people are on the Galactica, but 61 doesn't sound like nearly enough mm -hmm. people having like nervous breakdowns from t exhaustion. Yeah. Like, again, we can barely handle like a day, <laughs> you know, yeah. so it's pretty, uh, it's pretty impressive. But I guess, you know, there's also that... Uh, that sense of the adrenaline they're, they're like literally on the run and like if they if they stop they die so there's there's that part that kept kept them going for sure yeah ty says towards the end that he's never or he hasn't felt this alive in a really long time yeah totally it's funny because you know i read that a different way this time <laughs> <laughs> but uh it's well, still, knowing what we know yeah no we know but i still think it, it, like it's in the moment it was meant how it was taken on the surface which is mm -hmm. yeah he just uh oh man i actually feel alive you know so so there are 10 ships in the fleet that are having trouble with their jump drives and one of them is Colonial One. Rosalind says something to Billy about them cutting it a little close. Yeah, they talk about um, having to reboot the uh, nav computer or something like that. Yeah. And, like, I'm sure everybody doing, whoever it is that does the jump procedure is an expert by now mm -hmm. after five days. Mm -hmm. Because, it, like, they hadn't really used their FTLs. Mm -hmm. in a really long time so now this is like old hat <laughs> yeah basically I, I guess i guess it does explain how they go from uh the mini series where like you said they hadn't even used them really um to the rest of the series it's just like we're jumping They're yeah gone. yeah so so over on colonial one we start off actually in baltar's head back at his house on caprica with six she eventually asks him about his faith in God and he doesn't have any faith in God. And he says this thing about um, believing in things that are rational. And she says something and he's like, yeah, but you're not rational. Mm -hmm. And I like how at least right now he's just like almost dismissive of her until she like threatens him mm -hmm. which she does later and it's debatable whether she's right that god has a plan for him and the whole olympic carrier situation was a test or if she just used that situation to get what she wanted out of him what do you think yeah you know um, like when we get a little bit later down the line, um, the way they play the climax of the scene, I, I thought it was really interesting how there was a, um, an interplay on lots of different levels. Um, 
between like how like Baltar's objectives, her objectives, Rosalind's, Adama's, um, and then what the Cylons potentially. Um, you know, the way that I read her character now is actually separate from the Cylons. So like I know she is um six. Um like she she looks like the sixth model. But I'm starting, like, as I'm going through this time, I'm just kind of, like, reading her as an um, sort of, like, an outside participant that is sort of, like, um, like almost like a spirit guide or something, that kind of concept. Um, because I don't, I, I don't think she's, she's, is a Cylon. She's more of, like, I mean, she, when she refers to God often mm-hmm. and um, and then we know that final scene of the show so i think she's just an angel and i um she kind of like she knows what's happening and what's going on and she's kind of just playing around a little bit that's just kind of how i'm reading it this time as i'm watching it okay well we'll we'll track that see if it all adds up yeah I don't think it all adds up. That's <laughs> <laughs> one of the complaints that people have about the show, but I, I actually, it's just my interpretation this time. It just, I think she's just more of like a spirit guide and, you know. She definitely knows stuff. Yeah. And she knows what the Cylons are up to, to an extent, mm-hmm. or at least what their maneuvers are. Mm-hmm. Which she would if she is, like, a leftover from the actual six model that she was. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's tricky because, you, you know, part of me is, like, she's just, he's cracked. And she's just in his head, but it's not real. It's mm-hmm. just the situation, his involvement in it, his placing it and then being saved it just cracked his brain but then later when we spend time with caprica six and there's a baltar in her head yeah it's like we like i remember when we watched that episode because that was back when i was still in la Mm -hmm. and i was watching it every week with our friend sarah Mm -hmm. and i just remember all of us being like what the fuck is Mm -hmm. going on yeah like that was just so mind-blowing so it's trying to figure out what exactly they are and it never is explained Mm -hmm. it's just she exists in his head and then he exists in her head yeah and then definitely knows stuff yeah and again my interpretation is just and I, i i think so you know, when we the, when the finale happened, like there's a lot of people that hate the finale. Um, I don't, but I don't. Um, but uh, I do remember a friend, good friend of mine. We had this debate um, going back and forth, and it was like it was around the time when Lost had its finale too, within a year or so. And we were kind of going back and forth about both of those. And he really hated the finale. And he had some he had some valid points. I think when we whenever we get to season four, I think he has some valid points. And when I rewatched it, I I do see some things going on there. But uh, I I just 
I don't say it. I, he his dissatisfaction shifted um, a few years later because he said he had a very set way of thinking what life was about, and it was tied into um, a lack of accepting any kind of a spirituality. And that shifted for him over the course of a few years. And so he was able to accept some of these spiritual concepts that the show had. Um, and not not saying that he, it's like not saying that he became spiritual in real life, but he just kind of opened up to the idea that maybe this show was actually presenting that concept. Um, and so he was a little bit softer. And when he did that, he was able to accept these things that I think people reject, like the, you know, uh, Starbuck and um, and the the final scene with um, Head Baltar and um, Head Six. Mm-hmm. So I see it just as literally um, this time around, um, sort of like semi omnipotent observers that kind of. You know, they're kind of manipulating a little bit here and there, a little bit like a trickster would do, um, like a little nudge here and there to get the players to act in certain ways, um, but not there to actually um, do anything in the scene. So um, just kind of how I'm seeing it. It could change as we as we uh, move along, because <laughs> I don't know exactly how that plugs in. Um, in every scene as we as we go down the line so it'll be interesting to see yeah all right so adama has a plan to split the fleet into six smaller fleets and then for them to meet up at a designated jump point four jumps from now which seems unnecessarily complicated Mm -hmm. and the kind of idea that someone would come up with when they haven't slept for five days (laughs) You wanted to try something different, <laughs> so. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Like, I guess it would make their job on the Galactica easier at those 33-minute marks because you wouldn't have to wait for all of these ships to get to safety. Mm-hmm. They would be at safety. However, knowing what we know or kind of know about the Olympic carrier, mm-hmm. that would have been disastrous because wherever the Olympic carrier went, the Cylons would go. Yeah. And then destroy whatever those ships were. So we meet Crashdown for the first time. Yeah, that's what I wrote. Hey, Crashdown. (laughs) This is Kilo's replacement. He is played by Sam Witwer, who fans of Clone Wars and Rebels may recognize his name. He is the voice of Darth Maul. He is amazing as Darth Maul and yet when I found out it was him I was like oh that guy because I kind of can't stand Crashdown <laughs> oh, he's but, Crashdown's kind of the worst actually <laughs> <laughs> but now because I have so much love for Sam Witwer because of Clone Wars and Rebels I'm giving him a little bit of a chance this time mm-hmm. around let's see if he makes me hate him again but yeah we we've got crashdown who is not Hilo. boomer is not happy about this situation she calls him a refugee from triton i had to look it up triton is another ship yeah 
and he's heard a rumor that the Marines left a man on Ragnar Station and that maybe the Cylons look like humans now, which is, I mean, they should have known that there would be rumors when you leave, publicly leave a person. Mm-hmm. Um, Boomer, though, has no patience for him. I don't know if this is uh, because her, her Cylon program is kicking in where he's talking about um, Cylons looking like people. So, like, she's just dismissive of it because she doesn't want to be caught subconsciously. Or if it's because he's not Hilo and she's irritated that he's there and Hilo isn't. Or if she's just her own guilt for leaving Hilo behind. Yeah, I mean, I think it's all of those actually. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it's very all three. yeah, it's just it's very multi layered for her. You could understand um, um, a bunch of those a bunch of those reasons. So yeah, and then you know, Crashdown is like he's kind of a, he's a little bit of like a, a straight arrow doofus, um, so, <laughs> so he he can't really read the room. <laughs> yeah, I kind of always saw him as like. Like douchey, like the jocks I went to high school with. Uh huh. <laughs> well, or like what I would now say is like mediocre white man syndrome. Uh huh. Where well, they're just so confident over nothing. He, I mean, he definitely gets humanized a little bit later in the um, season, and yeah. Um, and it just like, as an actor, like I, I remember, I think the next time I saw him, he was on Smallville actually for a whole season arc, and um, and then he was uh, he was in Being Human, um, yeah. and and both of those roles for me, like he was so like um, like like kind of warm and sensitive, <laughs> and so it's uh, it's always funny to go back because every time I see Crash Down, it's like a kind of like a joke, you know. I mean, he as an actor made Darth Maul a character that that you actually care about. Mm-hmm. And that is all through his voice work. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't watch Being Human. I tried. Mm-hmm. But I love the British original version. Mm-hmm. And I watched the first episode of the sci-fi one and I was like, what the... I hate this. It's just not, it just was not right. It was not right that yeah. none of these people were right. They weren't, yeah. they weren't my people. Yeah. Um, but I have heard that he's very good in it. Yeah. It's, I, I mean, I love both. Um, but the, the sci-fi version actually gets to continue where the BBC version has to kind of cut short. Um, mm-hmm. and, I think they did a good job, but um, well, I feel maybe like... I'll give it another try now that I like Sam so much. Yeah, I, f- I feel you on that though. Um, it gave it, it but uh, it definitely—he's no Aiden Turner. Yeah, no, definitely not. Like that first season of BBC Being Human is just like you know stellar, but the problem yeah. with the BBC show is like people leaving and blah blah, and they just kind of it kind of trails off. Um, yeah, and then they and it's gets completely recast right at a certain point um yeah because aiden turner left after season three and then the girl i wish i could remember her name the yeah. one who played the ghost she left and i think the werewolf stuck around yeah but then he dipped out the i think thing. oh oh he stuck around through the whole thing 
I think okay. so. It's been a long time since I watched the final yeah. season. And I this is not the Being Human podcast, but right. I did I did like where they went with the new characters. Maybe they did end up being all three new characters, but um I don't know, there was just something really special about the first three seasons. Yeah. No, they were great. They were really great. I love them. So moving on to D. She is trying to find out if any of her family or friends have survived the attack on Sagittarion, but they don't have a complete list of survivors yet. So she's told to go put their picture on the wall. And what we see is that this entire hallway has been plastered with pictures of people's missing loved ones, which is very 9-11. Yeah. I think and they end up... T- Calling Go it ahead. the Wall of Remembrance, I think, or the Hall and the Hall of Remembrance. I think that's yeah. sort of the unofficial name for it. Every time I see this, it like is so tied in with the images of those like boarded up rows of sidewalks in New York with mm-hmm. people's pictures on them. It's just very effective. Mm-hmm. We find out that the current survivor count is forty nine thousand nine hundred and ninety eight people. But that will soon change. Oh, yeah. There was, it's interesting about that guy because there was, uh, was it 600 that they said went missing? 300. Or, yeah, 300, yeah. Um, and they, they, I found that, that whole sequence actually interesting because they were, it was like, was there a miscount? But then they were like, well, there were some people that, you know, died from wounds and then, um, they, I know, like, I, you know, in some of the reading that I was doing about the episode, there was, like, actually quite a bit that was cut out, um, maybe, like, 10 minutes or so that was cut. And some of it was, like, pretty dark stuff. Yeah. And, yeah, and one of one of them was that uh, there were some, um, some of the crew, Galactica crew, um, um, unalived themselves. And uh, I think... <laughs> That was a little, <laughs> that was deemed a little too dark. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, but it, it you know. It, at least it, for the first episode of the season. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because we do see that happen later. But um, anyways, it's it just, it just uh, you know, that uh, the fact that they had that moment just adds to like, even, even as we are, um they're trying to stay alive. There is this attrition that's happening um, despite their best efforts. So I just thought that was like a, a interesting scene to appear there. The D scene. Um, well, the, with the, the scene the with count. the, yeah, with the count. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. When they're talking about this, this is when Billy gets a um, message a little I I wanted to say text. It's not a text. It's a piece of paper <laughs> with a note that there's a doctor who wants to come talk to Roslyn that he's got urgent information regarding how the Cylons were able to orchestrate the attack. And in Baltar's head, Six is like, I knew that guy was on to us. Mm-hmm. With good reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you were doing some shit. Mm-hmm. And so Baltar is panicking. Um, it's this great moment where he's like trying to just act normal and can't because she's behind him talking. 
And after he leaves, Rosalind is like, well, he's a weird one. Yeah. <laughs> we we see that quite a bit, especially in the first uh, season. Uh, <laughs> they, yeah. Yeah. I love the uh, interplay between him and them and how he is in real life and in his head. and Yeah. Later, there's there's some moments where I'm just like, how did they not think that he was absolutely out of his mind? Mm-hmm. But he hasn't shown any of that stuff yet. There is a moment. This kind of, you, you know, I kind of go back to, you know, at the very beginning, uh, blah, 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 blah. There are these models of Cylons, whatever, blah, whatever, whatever, whatever. And they have a plan, right? And mm-hmm. people towards the end of the show are complaining that there was no plan. But literally right here in this um, moment, um, uh, Head Six says, I want to have a child with you, Baltar. Oh, right. Yeah. And I just was, and we know, like, we know where all of that stuff kind of goes. And I think that was the whole point of the show. Like, again, in the very first line of the miniseries when she says, Are you alive? Um, that was a part of what their plan was. They're exploring what it means to be alive and if they can um, become like, if they can have, uh, recreate in a, in a more organic, natural sense that humans do rather than the way that they have created themselves. So, But aren't they surprised when Athena is pregnant? Yeah, they, yeah, they are. Um, but that was sort of, um, it was sort of like, I mean, we'll, we, uh, we'll get into it a little bit more because that, that's a, like the Athena Hilo stuff um, is like it takes place the whole season. But I think that they were they were trying to understand what the nature of like love was and how that like how they could couple like all that kind of stuff. And I, it's like it sounds cheesy, but I think the the missing ingredient for having a kid was love. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's the fifth element. Um, so yeah, I just think it was like it, like a lot of it was like an exploration of the nature of being alive. And it, you know, we like we if you go think back to like what we know much later with um, like. Uh, I don't know whether we would call it real Earth or fake Earth that the Cylons were on, um, but they had um, a civilization where they could just recreate like humans do. And I think that they were um, these younger versions of Cylons that didn't really know where they came from were trying to find their path um, along the same lines. So... I just thought it was interesting that she said she wants a child in the first episode. And that's like literally where we end up heading down the road. Yeah. So. Uh, Baltar's face is hilarious when she's talking about that. Because mm-hmm. he's just like, are you fucking kidding me? You yeah. are not even real. <laughs> you are in my head. Like how? I think he actually says like, how would that happen? Yeah. He's. It's got commitment issues also. <laughs> well, that too. But <laughs> also, like, she physically doesn't exist. <laughs> right. <laughs> so then there's this whole thing about Adama having Doc Cottle, who we haven't met yet, prescribe stims to the pilots because they are so exhausted. 
and they need to be able to do these shifts and not fall asleep in their cockpits. We, we don't see, do we not see Doc Cottle till the second season or is it like later? No, in he's, first? he's in the first season, he's but the it's, first still, season? it's still a couple episodes away before yeah. we finally see him. I just remember like, cause they kept saying the doc, <laughs> we never yeah. got to see him and I, he's always I, on a different ship yeah i loved that actually when we finally got to see the doctor he wasn't what i expected and it was like oh but i, I love him love doc coddle so lee tells starbuck that she needs to take these sim stims and she's like yeah no i'm not doing that it makes my reaction time stalled and blah 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 and he just kind of lets it go and she's like no you are my superior. I am your subordinate. And I am telling you I'm not going to do something. You should smack me in the mouth and force me to take them because you are the commanding officer. And he's like, you want me to hit you? And she's just like, well, not really. But And then they end up laughing. So it's like establishing that their relationship is a lot of like butting heads and then at the same time having fun with each other. Yeah. Uh, the, the cornerstone of both iterations of Battlestar Galactica was the relationship between Starbuck and um, Apollo um, and kind of setting the dynamic here. Obviously you see how they interact. They both are very familiar with each other on a friend level, um, uh, on a personal level, but then there's that layer of command. And so, and then, like you said, Starbucks, like, you know, she's always like pressing buttons, right? So she, in, in, in a good way, like, you know, it establishes also story-wise that like Starbucks has to take on the mantle of being in charge now. Um, Cause I don't think he really wasn't in that position before. You mean Apollo? Um, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, Apollo. Um, so yeah, it serves like a lot of a lot of purposes, and I I think it's it's really interesting. I, they, I mean, I can go on and on. Every scene, there's like five different things happening, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I just like I just love how they set everything up. It's really really fascinating and great. She calls him out for his lackluster. Um like situation room meeting yeah too where she's like you don't say be safe out there you say good hunting Mm -hmm. like she's just calling him out for like being basically being kind of a weak leader and trying to push him to be a little more authoritative yeah she says like yeah he's trying to be everybody's friend or something and he's the cag you're the cag yep that was a lesson that i learned as a boss Mm-hmm. Um, the job I have now is the first time I've ever, I've been a supervisor before, but I still had a direct boss. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm the manager, I, it's my authority. Like mm-hmm. it's my store. It's my authority. I have a boss, but my boss is not there every day. He's not there hardly ever. So, you know, I could not be friends with my staff. Mm-hmm. I will not be friends with my staff because it can undermine my authority. It can blur those lines. 
And when I was a supervisor, I had there were people that I had been friends with as a barista. And when I became a supervisor, they would just expect me to like give someone else that job. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna. You're not gonna make me do it. Give it to that person. It's like no, I asked you to do it. So yeah, that was a that's an important lesson when you're in charge of other people. It's like but- if you're gonna be friends with them, you also have to leave that at the door when you get to work mm-hmm. and we have i mean we have a little conversation a little bit later with adama and um uh, ty kind of along those lines where ty basically you know says yeah i'm i'm the ball buster so that and then you know adama's like yeah so he can look good you know mm-hmm. so you always have to if the what does he say if the xo if, if you aren't mad at the XO, then you're not doing your job or something along those lines. Right. Yeah. So, um, but he right. gets to and be the buffer for the captain who, uh, can actually, the commander, he can, um, uh, still make laws, but people don't hate him. They still have to kind of like, um, have a, a warmth around him, um, mm-hmm. so that they can follow his lead. And even with Ty, like playing cards with them and whatever, which he probably shouldn't be doing. He's still like, None of that matters once we're in our uniforms. Yeah. So then we execute jump number 238. And when they get to where they jump to, D realizes that there is a ship unaccounted for. This is the Olympic carrier. She doesn't know if she missed them in her checklist or if they jumped to the wrong place or if the Cylons got them before they were able to jump. There were over 1,300 people on the ship. No one is happy about this. I feel bad for D because, I mean, we don't know for sure, I guess. It's left ambiguous whether or not the Olympic carrier was the ship that was tracking them. Although I do think it's leaning more towards it was than it wasn't. So this isn't her fault, but she's so tired Mm -hmm. that she just can't remember if it checked in or not. And that's got to be a terrible feeling when you think 1,300 people just died because of Cylons Mm -hmm. because I didn't do my job well enough. Right. Like even if – and I I do think she she did her job, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't her fault. But in that moment, yeah, like she – nobody knew at that point. So it kind of gets revealed a little bit more as they move along. Um, in time, but um, yeah, like even Gata, every, everyone was kind of dumbfounded. No one could really give any answers, and yeah, it's well, uh, Gata defended her. Yeah, but it, it's like no one could, they, they, no one could really say for sure what happened. But it's right. I mean, it's be, I mean, in my head is because the Cylons like took them, <laughs> you know. So um, it wasn't their fault. So do you think the Cylons had been tracking that ship this whole time or it was just convenient that they captured one and then didn't jump to the coordinates for three hours? I kind of feel like if I'm if I'm kind of going down the logic path, I kind of feel like maybe the pilot or the captain somebody in that crew was uh 
was a Cylon agent. And that was just kind of it. And because there were there were still other Cylons in the fleet that we'll see a little bit later, mm-hmm. but none of them were really like it's not like they all like had tracking chips or something in their bodies. Right. But I think in this particular instance, it probably was like the captain or one of the, the flight crew. And I only say that because when we see the ship later, it's the captain's actually talking. Um, Mm -hmm. and then, um, but then all of a sudden like makes a beeline for the other ships. So logistically that's just kind of what I think is happening. And then maybe was relaying that information to the, uh, the Cylons and so, yeah. Well, the Olympic carrier disappearing is great news for Baltar because Dr. Emmerich was on that ship and head six tells him that God is looking out for him. He is not convinced. He says it's a coincidence. She does not like this at all. And basically says that whatever God gives, he can take away. Mm-hmm. The clock hits 33 minutes and the Cylons don't appear. Adama changes them to level two. I can't remember the phrase he used. But it's like allowing everybody to get some rest while they're sort of in a holding pattern like maybe the chase is over and we can we can relax let's take advantage of this except for apollo starbuck and boomer who are all on stims so they get to stay out and patrol and then the olympic carrier returns they claim that they couldn't get their jump drive to work and it took three hours to fix it they also have a really lame excuse of, I don't know why the silence didn't attack us. They just left us alone, mm-hmm. which is suspicious. And Dr. Amarak is still adamant that he needs to speak with the president immediately. And this is where Baltar like rushes over to Rosalind and is like, no, it's their silence. They were tracking that ship. They were tracking that ship. And he's like freaking out. And then Adama's like, yeah, I agree. Yeah, this was the scene that I thought was actually really brilliant because, um, again, it's like, like Baltar's motivation is like he, he immediately goes into that hysteric survival mode, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but he actually <laughs> was actually correct. And, um, and then again. watching... Yeah, again. But then watching... Um, but like, again, his motive was just clearly so that he doesn't quote unquote get in trouble. Mm-hmm. And, um, but then, um, uh, Rosalind is actually like, actually kind of contemplating this seriously. Um, and it's not pick, to, not necessarily picking up on his hysteria of wanting to survive, but more of like, um, reading it as like, he's pretty adamant that like we're in danger, which um, Adama pretty much picks up on that right away. Like, cause he goes, like he says action stations or whatever. Right. He doesn't, he doesn't accept like this idea that they just came back. So he's pretty yeah. alert to the situation. Um, anyways, I just, I like watching it. I just loved like everybody's coming at it from a different place and it's all playing, taking place in that moment. It's really, again, I'm going to say this a billion times, but every scene is like, kind of like a masterpiece <laughs> <laughs> they are told 
uh, well, Boomer is told to tell the ship to halt its movements towards the fleet or to stop coming towards the fleet. The fleet. Everybody else is to get off of the networked communication so that the Cylons can't infiltrate. But the ship stops responding to her. And, well, I guess she had to go to no communication, so she sort of flashed a signal at them. But they ignore that and keep moving towards the fleet. Mm -hmm. Then Apollo opens communications and is trying to talk to them, and they won't answer him. Mm-hmm. Adama wants them to destroy the ship. Cra- is it Crashdown rec- notices some nuclear yeah, signatures they, or something? Um, on the, sh- I think they simultaneously. I might be misremembering, but uh, Crashdown definitely gets a radiological alarm, and I think they might detect it on Galactica as well. Um, the question. Is initially is where is it coming from and then they're like oh it's actually from the olympic carrier and then that's when everything changes that's that's when he decides that uh that they need to shoot the ship down yeah like why would a passenger vessel have nukes on it mm-hmm. so apollo gets into position and Starbuck is really against doing this. But when they get the okay, which they don't get until conveniently after Baltar is bullied into repenting. Mm-hmm. Apollo opens fire and Starbucks follow, Starbuck follows his lead. And the ship blows up. And then the Cylons stop following them. That scene is actually really interesting because of the. I just remember the first time I watched it. It's a very haunting shot of Apollo flying by the windows of the Olympic carrier yeah. just to see if there's anybody in there, and you see this like empty ship. Um, but I do know, like through listening to the podcast years ago, they did have like there the special effects person had like one of the windows actually show a hint of movement just to kind of make it so that there's this question, you know, on uh, the Wikipedia page or from the Battlestar wiki, mm-hmm. there was a thing about um, originally written and shot that Apollo fires on the Olympic carrier, but it was made clear that he sees people inside. Mm hmm. Ron Moore wrote the scene to be strong and clear that the characters were making the decision to fire on the passenger liner in full awareness of the consequences and to illustrate and emphasize the uncompromising nature of the show. This was an enormous fight between Moore and the network with the network feeling this was another scene that was too dark and had the potential to turn away audiences. The network further implied that if the scene were left intact, they may have been compelled to air the episode out of order. So to placate the network, Moore and Ike changed the ending of the episode and cheated. Instead, when Apollo fires or flies by the Olympic carrier, it's unclear whether or not there's anybody inside. Having said that, it's I mean, it's interesting. I, if I contemplate, I feel like the fight that the execs might have put on actually was a good one because the vagueness of it is what we carry with us. Yeah. 
and it made it to, in in it made it more powerful in a different way than if it was like blatantly we saw like we it, it just would have been a completely different experience and who who who's to say what would actually happen but like and it, it, it was this lingering i don't know and it kind of like it was around for a long time <laughs> you know and i i think the impact of that actually was maybe stronger um story-wise than if they had it just you know shown them actually having to destroy um, all those people and it was like certain that there were people on the ship the way i always took it was there had been people on the ship there had been 1300 plus people Mm -hmm. now they're dead Mm -hmm. because the silence killed them and that in itself is upsetting that there mm-hmm. were Cylons on the ship. Maybe there were multiple Cylons on the ship, mm-hmm. you know, not just Centurions. Maybe they had Centurions sort of tucked away somewhere, or maybe it was just a whole lot of human models. Mm-hmm. I guess it couldn't be a whole lot because there's only so many of them. You can't have a bunch of twins walking around, but enough of them that they could kill everybody in those three hours. Yeah. Maybe the ship was mostly empty because everybody was dead on the ground instead of sitting in front of windows. Or maybe there were never 1,300 people on that ship and they just lied about their count. Yeah, I mean, I I took it to mean like what you said, the first version, that they were there were 1,300 people there and then it didn't jump and the Cylons took them maybe start doing experiments on them or whatever, but they were no longer on the ship um, when it, when it jumped back. But, Oh yeah, that could be too, is that there were 1300 people on the ship. There was one or two Cylon agents that made it so that it didn't jump possibly, mm-hmm. probably the pilot. Mm-hmm. And then the Cylons boarded the ship and Centurions just killed them all. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we know they, they we know that, you know, we see later they, they do, they have saved some humans and mm-hmm. um, for whatever they're trying to discover. So, uh, yeah, he definitely could have. They definitely could have, like, whisked them away, killed some. Who knows? Well, that segues us nicely into on Caprica. There's not a whole lot to talk about because Hilo is basically just running and being pursued by Centurions. He kills a few, he blows a couple up, but then he is caught because he's distracted by a six in a white coat just standing in the woods, and then a centurion comes up behind him, ties him up, and then she approaches him and asks if he's alive, and then kisses him because that's what she does (laughs) at this point in the series. (laughs) I'm glad that they kind of stopped that a little bit with having her just like be just so overtly sexual all the time Mm -hmm. because she's much more interesting when she's not yeah as she's kissing him though she is shot he's horrified because he doesn't know that they look like humans so he just thinks this is a person Mm -hmm. who just got shot and it is sharon and he's like what are you doing here i told you not to come back for me and she's just like can you walk? Let's go. And they take off together. 
And we see another six in a white coat watching them go away with a centurion. I was going to act like we're not a spoiled show here. I'm sure we'll see them again. <laughs> uh, we will get more of Hilo and Sharon on the run story as we well, go on. The the sort of the interesting part for me about that, especially when the show, like, you know, it had been, it felt like it had been a year since, uh, since uh, the miniseries. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, we know the story of them kind of on the run, the fleet uh, escaping, but then they all of a sudden we were, we're like, we have this scene with the guy. Oh, that's the guy that was in the miniseries. Oh, we're back on Caprica. And I kind of didn't know what was going on. And it added this element of um, not a game changer, but like a little bit of like, there was an intrigue around it. Um, Mm -hmm. And it plays out over um, quite a bit of time. Um, I think I talked about it in the last podcast, but Part uh, part of uh, the decision for that was motivated um, from uh, the uh, studio, like really liking Tamo, and mm-hmm. um, and so they you know brought him back. But it's like we bring him back. What do we do with him? Um, and then they created this whole um, story arc. But you know, just knowing how it all plays out, and it takes over a season for it, but. It's also like knowing that the fleet is leaving Caprica, but we keep coming back to Caprica. And it's just like, how is this going to connect? Um, and it was like, it was really intriguing. It kind of made this mystery feeling. Um, so it added a different element to the show that it, it um, that made it more interesting than it already was. Um, and it gave us, it gave probably the writers a little bit uh, of a break from um, having to do all of the... Uh, scenes and storylines um, on Galactica to wipe them out so they can always just go back to Caprica for a little bit and check out Hilo. <laughs> it was also because the execs at Sci-Fi were really concerned about this being just another Stargate or Star Trek or mm-hmm. whatever kind of show. Yeah, And so part of the pitch to get this picked up to series was, well, we have Hilo still on Caprica, so we're going to be on a planet surface. And also mm-hmm. we've got Baltar constantly retreating to his house in his head. Mm-hmm. So we'll have this beautiful scenery like on a lake, you know, so it sort of breaks up everything being on ships. Yeah. And that helped them sell the show, the show. It was a more grounded version um, than what was on the original series. They would go to other planets on the original series, but it was, you know, those planets were often inhabited already with other people. There was a, they, I think in the first episode or second episode, they go to some uh, bar, <laughs> cantina in space. <laughs> but uh, well, that was... Just... That was just like a reflection of Star Trek. Yeah. Because like all we knew with space shows was like needs to be like, like what Star Trek did. You go to other planets and there's aliens. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, it was like there, it was, it was like a a different version of that. One of the things I, I, I really loved about uh, the new series was like the idea that there was like, 
cat like life was on Caprica, and then that was it. There was like once you once they got out there, like space is vast, distant, and it's dark and it's cold, and life is precious, and it's really rare and hard to find out there. Mm-hmm. So literally trying to find earth meant something it wasn't just like they could have stopped anywhere and when they do make a decision to stop later it's actually a hard life that they um they're kind of agreeing to for certain reasons so um in the first series were there aliens or were they was it all humans Oh, uh, there, there were definitely when they, so they were mostly mostly humans that we saw. The Cylons actually were like originally like lizard people or something, mm. um, and like when they went and then in that first movie, like actually it was they showed it as a movie, and my parents actually took me to see it. <laughs> um, but they they are like on this planet, and there's these uh, alien women that are singing like a disco song, and they had like they had like three or f- they had like four eyes and like two mouths or something. There's like oh three God. or four of them. They got like afros, really cool. I think it, like. <laughs> Um, I, I sent you the I sent you the uh, that disco soundtrack, and that one of the tracks is the is what they're singing. Yeah, so, um, but yeah, but I don't, you know, they don't, I can recall a couple of episodes where they're on a planet, but it's like, uh, the, the, here's like some farmer out here on his planet. Um, there was a whole spiritual spaceship element of people that were aliens, but they all looked human. Um, I can't recall outside of those um, disco singers of any other blatant non-human characters though i remember edward james almost saying that one of the stipulations for him for taking this job was the assurance that there would be no aliens in this Mm -hmm. show Mm -hmm. that he was not going to do a sci-fi show with aliens he's not doing it it's not his bag he didn't want it Mm-hmm. And they were like, no, no, this is like political and drama. This is a drama. It mm-hmm. just happens to take place in space. Yeah. And That's I always was. appreciated that because it was hard for me to get into sci-fi. I had mm-hmm. a weird bias against it because I thought everything was kind of like Star Trek, which I wasn't into Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a little into it now, but Star Trek has always been a little sanitized, I guess, for me. Mm-hmm. Everything just sort of wraps up at the end of every episode, and that's just not the kind of storytelling I've ever really been into. It's actually really interesting that you say that, because that was sort of, again, like Ron Moore's 
involvement in Deep Space Nine was changing that dynamic mm-hmm. you're talking about. And it was one of the first times in Star Trek where they had any semblance like long form storytelling um, and like season arcs and that stuff. Like back then, like early 90s, that was like it was very rarely done. Yeah. Um, uh, the consequences of things that happened before, um, you know, kind of carried over and, you know, that structure was there just out of necessity for them to be able to sh- like before deep space nine was just so that they could show episodes out of order. That was pretty much it. That's why everything wrapped up. But as TV started to progress, they wanted to like get into the more interesting elements of changing that. And they did that pretty successfully on Deep Space Nine. His discord came when he was on Voyager and he wanted to sort of continue that idea by following the premise, which is the ship is, uh, uh, what, 70 years away from Earth. But the showrunners kept wrapping everything up as though, like, nothing happened. (laughs) So every episode was like a restart. And um, so he, like, that's why Ron Moore left the show. And so he took, like, basically what he thought Voyager should have been over into Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. Yeah. He also left the show, I read this in that So Say We All book, because um, the showrunner on Voyager, he had worked with him on something mm-hmm. else. Don't yeah. think it was Deep Space Nine, but he'd worked Mm-mm. with him on something else. But in that situation, he was the boss. Mm-hmm. And this guy was be- like below him. Mm-hmm. And now the tables were turned and it sounds like Ron Moore had a lot of difficulty sort of changing the dynamic mm-hmm. where he was subordinate. Mm-hmm. Not that he resented his friend for being his boss now, but because he just was so used to the dynamic that they'd had that he was incapable mm-hmm. of being a number two. I think a lot of the decisions that they made on the show would have contributed to that. Cause it's one thing if you're on the same page and you're subordinate, but I remember him just talking a lot about how there was just like an inconsistency with, yeah. uh, and, and like a not caring about like they would destroy. I mean, he says it like they destroyed a shuttle craft um, in Voyager. And then the next episode, they have the same number as like, it gets stuff like that. And I can see how, I mean, I can see how that, like, that's, if you're not in charge, but the person in charge is like, oh, no, no big deal, whatever. <laughs> I yeah. can see it. You know, I can see how that would be like an extra added twist in, um, on top of not getting to, like, make the call or something. And the studio was like, no, no, we're not doing the serialized stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, they wanted to be able to have it in syndication and just have whatever episode play. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like coming into Battlestar when I was already dipping my toe into sci-fi because previously, like, it was Star Wars and that was it. Like, mm-hmm. that was the only sci-fi I paid any attention to. Um, when somebody, I think it was our friend Darnell, who was like, well, you watch Buffy, that's sci-fi. 
Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, it's not. And he's like, it's vampires. It's sci-fi. <laughs> yeah. And when I started to think about sci-fi as being more than just things that take place in space, and it opened up like all of these areas of storytelling for me. And then, you know, Battlestar comes along and I watched that one episode and was like, holy shit, this is just yeah. like a really good drama. Yeah. So I want to watch it. Um, but what I love about it is it's a drama. It's a yeah. story about people. They just happen to be on a ship mm-hmm. or a series of ships. It's just, oh, just really spectacular. I have watched a bit ahead in season one and i'm just so excited about this show i can't stop watching it i love it so much it's actually funny for me because like i mean i mean sci-fi is always like spaceship sci-fi has been my all from almost day one has been my favorite like even before star wars you know um Uh it's always been my you know favorite um and it's funny what you were saying because, like, you don't like the aliens. And it's, like, right before uh, Battlestar came on, like, I just discovered Farscape. And Farscape's, like, like they go deep down the rabbit hole of, uh, like, exotic-looking aliens and creatures. Yeah, there's a reason I have – I've always looked at that show and been like, nope, yeah. not it's, for me. It's, it's funny because it, it actually – I feel like it – it does what you like you were saying like star trek felt sanitized and i feel like farscape actually like wiped away that sanitization and it was like this like they doubled down on the the costumes and the characters and it was a little bit more like <laughs> realistic's not the word but like it would have been more organic for the world that they created um and um the star trek just kind of had a more stately look the aliens just had Mm. ridges on their noses Um, right yeah and um anyways i don't know i just think it's funny because like i went from i went from farscape being like my all-time favorite to like almost immediately after um battlestar came on they're like almost two completely different shows but yeah (laughs) um, you know served me well i used to say frell a lot that was the swear in uh farscape and then you know pretty soon changed to frack so Frack is much more fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Ron Moore explained on his blog that a, the number 33 had no hidden meaning or significance, only that he felt it, sufficient, it was sufficiently long enough to allow minor functions like snacking, showering, or catnapping, but was too short to allow anybody to gain any meaningful sleep and recharge their batteries. Mm-hmm. He intentionally gave the number no meaning to avoid creating and inserting unnecessary technobabble into a drama-driven episode. Um, yeah. We talked about cutscenes. One of them, well, here's a little series of them. There was included a shot in the pilot's head showing the pilots wrecked and exhausted with an exchange between Starbuck and Apollo, as well as several shots of Commander Adama gagging and vomiting because of acid reflux brought on by sleep deprivation. Jesus. (laughs) Yeah. Glad they left that out. I didn't even know that was a sign of like, what? (laughs) I don't know. Um, Another scene that they left out was um, we see in this episode as they're leaving the ready room, they all sort of touch this photograph 
yeah. of a guy on his knees. And the explanation of that was um, inspired by the shot of firefighters racing the flag at Ground Zero, mm-hmm. which was itself inspired by the soldiers raising the flag at Iwo Jima. Mm-hmm. Um, the, it was a snapshot in the moment that became a symbol of the day they can never forget and that they had all lost. It's a picture of a soldier falling to his knees as he stands on the rooftop overlooking the devastation of his city. And it's supposed to be on Aralon. Hmm. And the inscription... The, oh, um, Roslyn was supposed to get a copy of this. Okay. And on the plaque, it says, lest we forget. Mm-hmm. I like that they just didn't give an explanation for it because you can kind of understand what it means just by seeing it. Yeah, I never knew all of that. I just always saw the picture and I understood what it was and what it meant. I didn't know the specifics. I didn't know it was on Aralon. It makes me um, actually kind of... it. I'm in line with the sort of like racism they they uh explore a little bit later in the show because i always assumed it was caprica (laughs) but uh um but yeah it's like it's pretty self-evident it's like it was like a character for me and it just kind of just like the uh the remembrance um hall it just seemed like something that people would do in that environment and i didn't need um, a great explanation about it and it's almost like it, it was a character um of the show or at least of the um of the the cag ready room or whatever you call it so and it's during the first cylon war yeah yeah and what i like about sort of learning this and then seeing because they don't do that in the first episode when they're like running out of the ready room and everything you mm-hmm. don't see them doing that they do it now because now suddenly now we're at war we haven't been mm-hmm. at war for 40 years and so now we're at mm-hmm. war and here's a picture from the first one yeah and they slap it right there's like that yeah, there's that, that there, element of like everybody good luck. Yeah, yeah everybody does sort of a different thing but yeah it reminds me of friday night lights and ted lasso <laughs> Uh, in Friday Night Lights, it's I, I I don't remember what their sign says. If it was clear eyes, full yeah, hearts. Yeah, yeah, clear eyes, full hearts can't lose. I'm actually in the middle of watching that right now. That's my second favorite show behind Battlestar Galactica. Oh God, it's so. a perfect show except yeah. for that whole chunk. Except of season for two. yeah, season two, yeah, <laughs> except for season two. Like some people, I'm like, oh yeah, just maybe just skip past that one. There's a writer strike, whatever. Yeah. Another little bit of trivia is that there was a an ad-libbed line from Edward James Olmos about suicides in the fleet, but it was cut to not alienate audiences by being too dark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the one I, I mentioned a little bit earlier. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and it's they do visit that topic much, much later. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it is a bit dark. And then they wrote in the additional scene at the end where Rosalind learns that there was a baby born on the rising star, Ah. which is a nice little scene. They wanted to end it with a little bit of hope. They, that was a last minute one. Cause that seemed like it was the whole thrust of the 
episode, actually. I, I mean, good writing will find a way to make that kind of suggestion work. But they've yeah. been... Um, it was supposed to... Originally, it was supposed to end with Hilo's escape from the Cylons on mm. Caprica. And okay. the episode... Or the network kept saying that the episode was too dark. Mm-hmm. So they added this baby being born, which is exactly how it should end from, you know, when we're looking at like 3,300 or 1,300 people just died. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of the, the, the thing about this show for me was as dark as it got, there was always like these little glimmers of hope and that idea that it's worth continuing to fight for, you know, to exist and, it's also kind of answering that speech that Adama says in um, the miniseries about, mm-hmm. you know, do, you know, where are we worth being alive or whatever, you know, paraphrasing what he said. Yeah. Um, but yeah, those little moments are the ones that you go, oh, yeah, that's right. And it, and it calls back to that line that he said they that Rosalind said in the miniseries, uh, you know, we need to start having babies. So. There's something on the other side of this if we just stick it out. Yeah, I think sometimes you've got a writer who goes real hard on, like, I, you know, here's my vision. And it is unlike anything you've ever seen on television before. And sometimes, oftentimes, network executives uh, are a nuisance and they don't know what they're talking about. And other times, that input is needed because I think if you're and you're a writer, so I would assume you kind of feel this way. Like sometimes you're just too close to something and you need somebody to be like, okay, this is great, but a bummer. Yeah. So, it's never fun getting notes actually. Well, <laughs> sure. <laughs> Cause you're just like, why don't you get it? Or like, what's the big deal? Like, you know, um, and and I think those are the fights that I think they they fought a lot. But it's true because, uh, you, you know, it's always good to have a different perspective. Like you can be so dialed in that you, you, you know, can't see what is it? Can't see the forest for the trees yeah. kind of deal. Um, yeah. And in, in this case, it, it like kept them honest, you know, like, yeah, yeah. Like we, we do need to have them have a reason to actually want to be alive and, um, through it, it's actually interesting. One of the things I I had been thinking about um, rewatching this show over the last few years was um, again it in the context of um, the pandemic. How I'd always thought about watching the show that we only really see the military and we never really see the effect that it had on the civilians being cramped on these ships and um and i having experienced the last you know three years i was kind of like uh the effects of their situation kind of felt even more real to me you know Mm. and um yeah another reason why this show i think is just like like so many things happen in the real world that can inform the uh the show whether it was um, 9-11, Iraq war, now the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> Stuff we didn't you even know? see coming yeah, like the yeah. pandemic. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> it's just because it's not that it's like, it's not that it's, um, necessarily, um, 
uh, trying to predict anything, but it's actually, I think it just reflects back on the nature of humanity. And so we kind of go through the same things and all the time. So it's just very authentic in that way. So, well, who would have thought that there would be a time in our lives where we were told to not leave our houses, Mm -hmm. you know, and some people handled that well. I, I mean, I want to say I did as far as not being able to go anywhere. I was cool with that. Mm-hmm. Like partially because I was scared, but also because I'm a Gen Xer. I spent a lot of time by myself as a teenager. <laughs> I've always been right. really cool with just hanging out at home and watching TV. Like right. I, I have to sit at home for eight weeks and watch TV. Okay. Yeah. I was fine with that. Um, but I know I'm also introverted. And so that also made it easier for me to mm-hmm. stay home. I have friends who struggled really badly with the not being able to be social aspect, the mm-hmm. not being able to leave your house aspect, like just being that cabin fever. Yeah. And it would have been interesting if we'd seen a little more of that on this show, because I would imagine, especially the people who are like, I'm just traveling from one place to the next and Oh shit now all of our homes are destroyed. Now I'm stuck on this ship and you literally can never leave the ship except Mm -hmm. to maybe get shuttled over to a different ship. Yeah. It's, you know, to have explored what that would do to someone's psyche would have been interesting. Again, they, they, they do touch on it here and there. Um, sometimes a little, a lot bit later, but they, in this first season, I know they touch on it a little bit when they're in the, uh, I think it's Colonial Days, the episode. And then um, uh, the, I think it's in the second season. Um, just talking about, again, I think it's authentic to human experience where it, like not everybody was on board with what the military was saying. And there were people that were coming up with like their own version of conspiracy theories and, um, and they were taking action based on that. So I just, again, the, like the stuff that we were seeing, um, it, uh, like how we were, how people were acting in these, in these last few years to me was pretty like on brand with humanity. I wasn't really surprised <laughs> with a lot of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. not everybody's always going to agree, but this, again, this show is very, like, is very, in tune with how a group of people will react to um, extreme circumstances. All right. So let's go through our categories. Um, was Baltar the worst this week? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, he probably was. I I felt like he was not the worst, but he was definitely annoying. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not his fault, though. Like, I'll give him a pass. He's very tired. And he's dealing with this strange sensation of having his dead robot girlfriend in his head. So (laughs) for now, I'm giving him a little bit of grace. Who would you throw out the airlock? You know, so I have this, this is going to be an unpopular answer, but... Like, for the first season, I found Starbuck pretty grating, like, almost always. <laughs> so You know what's funny is my boyfriend said the same thing yesterday. Yeah. And her, so that whole scene with her and Lee, 
I, I just was like, yeah, I could have, I could have done without it. There was so there's not, it's just the way she, the way she's abrasive. It's the acting. It was like all this stuff. And she just like, she would drive me nuts, you know? <laughs> and so I would, uh, I, I'll bet at the same time I liked her. So it wasn't, it, you know, so it was a strange thing, yeah. but, um, um, Probably because she challenged my idea of femininity, actually, now that I think about it. <laughs> yeah, like, there's a, an, a, there was a scene and, and a few episodes down the road where she shows up in a dress. And <laughs> I remember going, oh, yeah. you know, so then I, I make, and then I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm just a pig. And she, <laughs> she she's not fitting into what I think she needs to be. And that's probably why I was so rough on her. But Anyway, having said all that, I still would throw her out the airlock. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I I don't know if I have anyone really that like really got on my nerves in this episode. So for me, they're safe. Everyone's safe from the airlock this week. You know, real quick, you know what it was when they said to shoot a sh- warning shot across the bow of the Olympic carrier. She started laughing when she did it. That's what, that's what drove me nuts. Like, did she? Yeah. She kind of was like, ha Cause she was playing like I'm on stems and I'm like, she was playing it like she was drunk rather than like, you know, this was like a s- tired, weary, situ- serious situation. Yeah. This one, yeah. She did that a lot. So, did you have a favorite Cylon this week? Hmm. I mean, when, when Athena shows up, as opposed mm-hmm. to Boomer, like when Athena shows up, like she, she will always be my number four. <laughs> Let's go, Mister. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we gotta uh, move. For me, it. Yeah, it's. It's the number eight. I can't really pick between Boomer and Athena. I like them both at mm-hmm. this point. So Sharon's my favorite of the Sharon's. Yeah. Um, I don't have a frack count. I was thinking of trying to keep track of all the fracks, and I just don't think that's possible. So I'll probably delete that. <laughs> <laughs> um, who do you think? Got full colors. Who's the best this week? The uh, the best uh, character. character. Yeah. Um, hmm. I'm going to go with uh, it's a toss up. So I'm going to go between Colonel Ty and Rosalind. Okay. Yeah, for completely different reasons. What are your reasons? Um, Ty was sort of playing to his character and like exactly who he needed to be. Um, he's sort of like this, you know, the, the kind of the ball breaker. Um, and, and, and I probably am cheating a little bit cause like, I kind of know where he, you know, kind of where he ends up, especially at the beginning of season two. Um, but then Rosalind you know, like the whole thing about her is like she's the nurturer to the fleet, the nurturer, and I like her 
calming presence or her in control presence um in all the scenes she kind of grounds everything um from the like the intensity you know so there's a scene there's a scene when uh when he had when adama has to you know he's like get me the president and they have that interaction like i really loved it because it was so distant (laughs) and i loved how they were playing these official roles and they kind of like especially like adama didn't really want to deal with her but he's kind of like playing to it because he's like you know he had to but the way that Rosalind plays the plays the role is like she's like no we really are doing something and you're going to follow this and I know what I'm talking about like I just I don't I love that dynamic in the in the early days anyways and I love how it you know obviously how it shifts so there was yeah. um several times in this episode where he's like this is a military decision and she's mm-hmm. like yeah I get that I'm just yeah. I'm just asking questions yeah, I'm he says that a to lot. In, <laughs> in the yes, first he does. season, he says that but a I lot. But I think because he he doesn't respect her and he doesn't truly respect her authority. Yeah. Early on, and so it's almost like he's trying to justify his actions by it's a military decision, and she's like, "Yeah, mm-hmm. I didn't have any issue with that. I'm just, you know." deferring to you on this just asking the question yeah um i i would say for me it's rosalind um i just in a crazy situation that she's never expected to be in she like she does this whole thing where she's just like okay next crisis Mm -hmm. and i just kind of like that about her where she's Mm -hmm. just like everything is really stressful and a lot to handle but what's what's the next thing on our docket let's just get through one thing at a time i will give ty credit for allowing adama to get a 10 minute nap and when d says i'm pretty sure it was your turn he's like he didn't remember that he hasn't taken a nap he needs a nap I just like that he's looking out for Adama and sacrificing a little bit of rest for himself. One of my last notes about Ty was that he, uh, when they, cause they were, when they were talking about you, you mentioned earlier when he's like, I've never felt more alive. I feel good. I was like, yeah, cause he hasn't been able to have a drink for five days. So he's, <laughs> well, he's got his bottle. <laughs> It's like, is he, was he like detoxing or something? That's why he feels good. Well, yeah. For these five days, he probably hasn't been able to have a drink because right, just right. there's no time to like stop. He can't he right. can be sharp. Yeah. Yeah. So, all anyways. right. So, next week we have water. So, a lot of sleeper agent boomer stuff. Yeah, any, it's going to be any pre thoughts. Yeah, I just uh, this this was uh, the, I mean, this first uh, five or six episodes, obviously, you know, laid the groundwork, I think, for, you know, where the show is going to head. But one of the important part for this second episode was just that it was dealing with like the practical side of 
what the situation they were faced with, which is, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, like we need, we need water. It's a, we just kind of, we don't think about water a lot in our world because it's, we, we just turn on the faucet and it just appears, but it's like, it comes from somewhere and it has to do something. And they had to deal with that. And again, you know, thinking over back to Voyager, that was stuff that they just never like really dealt with, you know? So, um, and it, um, on top of the Cylons, it was like they just had to f- deal with this. And I think there's an issue with food uh, down the road. Um, so it's all, you know, all good stuff. Yep. Agreed. All right, then. Until next time, what do you hear? Nothing but the rain. Bye. Bye. You're listening to the Geekscape Network. 